Welcome to the second episode of the Ulster Rugby Lab podcast. I hope our listeners are keeping well in these in these crazy and challenging times. I know I've been missing rugby chat and I'm sure lots of people out there have been missing rugby chat as well. Obviously we haven't had any rugby for obvious reasons but I think there's loads to talk about. I'm joined by Grant Davies who is a coach, an analyst uh, and a teacher and uh, he does uh, some uh, coach development uh, and mentoring as well but, but Grant could you tell me in your, in your own words sort of what, what you do what your background is yeah yeah I'm pretty fully engrossed in sport in, in lots of different ways uh, my day job I'm the, I'm the head of sport at a school um, and that's kind of takes up my, my daylight hours uh, and outside of that I, I work for the rugby football union um, in a court development role so I run level one level two courses and then mentor level three courses uh, and that's been a part of my life for kind of ten years or so. Um, and then I also coach, uh, and, and coaching has has been a massive focus of mine since I was seventeen. Uh, I was very fortunate at seventeen to uh, to play at the at the Clashy Scarlets. Um, and a part of playing there and studying, uh, I was able to do a coaching qualification. Um, that was a, back then. It was the preliminary coaching award. It was a, yeah. a, an award that doesn't actually exist anymore. Um, yeah. So I started right at the bottom of the of the ladder. Um, and coached in primary schools and kind of did my uh, did my apprenticeship as as coaching goes. Um, coaching in primary schools, co- coaching in secondary schools, doing mini and junior section at clubs, kind of under nines and the tens, and uh, and then kind of got to that point in my in my life where uh, you don't quite get off of the contract that you that you wanted. Um, and I went to university, um, so I went to Loughborough University when I was nineteen, um, having had a, a couple of uh, really good years uh, of playing and kind of. Did my best the kind of court, the playing angle, um, and then through kind of mix of things, really mix of injury and uh, kind of wanting to probably have a little bit uh, aside from playing. Kind of coaching became more of a focus, really, from the age of kind of nineteen twenty, um, and then it progressed from there. Really, um, kind of went into rugby development jobs initially, um, and then decided to go into teaching. Uh, so we went into teaching three years after um, kind of graduating from university and. Uh, did the kind of the, the backwards route into teaching? I suppose I kind of taught first for a couple of years, and then I became qualified to teach. Um, but coaching has been a theme all the way through, and I, I played obviously pretty regularly during. But my uh, my body hasn't necessarily kept pace, uh, unfortunately. So coaching's always been the kind of the constant in my life, yeah, uh, yeah. and been there kind of regardless of injury. And yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my life now is uh, teaching, coaching, and course development. Yeah, and so so, what attracted you into to coaching in the first place? Obviously, it's something you've always done, but have you always been really interested in the tactical side of the game and understanding how it all worked? I suppose there are lots of people who play rugby, even people who play rugby to a good level, and never really developed that understanding of the game. Uh, was that something which you you always just bought into? Whenever a coach was maybe talking about tactics or something, you were always thinking thinking tactically, thinking about structure, def- uh, defensive structure, attacking plays, and um, yeah, that's just something that came naturally to you? I, it's definitely always been a focus, um, kind of from, I, I first played the game when I was eight years old, um, and literally from the outset, I was, I was probably quite fortunate with my with my first coach, he always encouraged us to watch the games, so kind of my first memories of rugby are watching the Five Nations, um, Generally, watching Wales lose back in those days—that uh, <laughs> was the—that was the common theme of yeah. Welsh rugby at that point. 
Um, but I've just always been interested in, in watching the game and learning about it. Um, I think my my focus, uh, kind of almost uh, almost without knowing it, has been to kind of understand the game as well as is possible. And um, I think that's probably been a feature all the way through as a player. Um, and then kind of coaching, I suppose it came as a as a little bit of luck um, that my the course I did at college. Um, that offered coaching as as part of the course, uh, and that that opportunity initially sparked my enthusiasm immediately. I mean, it was a, I think a lot of people look at coaching as something that they do after they finish playing. Um, I've never seen it like that. Yeah, I, I think coaching and playing as two very very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't see one as better than the other. Um, I know a lot of people say that coaching is a poor substitute for for playing. Um, I've I've never I've never seen it that way. Uh, I've always yeah. seen that. I'm passionate about playing the game. I'm passionate about coaching the game, but they are the two very different things. And yeah. um, and I've I've always felt like that. So literally since that age, and I've been very self-driven from then. And kind of the coaching courses and whatever you've done since, and experience we've done since has been being very self-driven and just a want and a thirst to learn and and to get better. Yeah, and and something I've I, the, the reason I I sort of came across you, you started doing these um, analysis videos. You've started a YouTube channel. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that you're going to devote more time to, to, to producing these um, uh, these videos, or sort of dissecting um, particular parts of the game? And do you think that's an increasingly important part of, of covering rugby as well, giving people more of an in-depth understanding of what's going on? I suppose that's always happened, or, or certainly in recent years with football. Uh, we've always had that sort of in-depth analysis through matches of the day and things like that. We haven't really had a rugby equivalent. We've had some things and there's been some good programs. Um, but is that something, do you, do you see rugby heading that way where we'll have a lot more in-depth analysis, people talking about what actually just happened? Because we, we watch the game, but uh, how many of us actually understand it? Do you think that's the future of, of rugby? It's the way things are going? Yeah, I think so. It's uh, I think rugby has survived for a very, very long time uh, as a really complex game with kind of fans being fairly happy having a having a, a fans understanding of the game um, and a fans understanding of the game. It kind of builds their passion and they and they get very um, very passionate about certain parts of the game. Um, I think American sport is is light years ahead of us in terms of their their engagement with fans, their uh, the way that they explain kind of games like American football as an example. Um, I mean, there's there's a level uh, that I, I hope we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't go to in terms of over analysis, and it's yeah. a pretty fine line. Um, but I would suggest that the the current approach to um, the engagement within the game. I think broadcasters have got a have got a lot of catching up to do to help help with engagement, help with understanding. Um, I mean, the, the game. A lot of people say rugby is a simple game. I mean, I I, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, yeah. I think it's incredibly complex, um, and I think it becomes more simple the more you understand it. Um, and I think social media has got a got a big part to play in that. And I, w- I would hope that broadcasters and uh, and competitions would be supportive of kind of people who who are uh, trying to kind of demystify the game and trying to give some kind of picture of the game that's maybe maybe alternative to what people's perceptions are. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think a lot of what's out there is actually fairly simple. I mean, there's a lot of analysis, a lot of stuff that kind of gets a lot of coverage that I don't actually think goes into the kind of detail that maybe, maybe it should do. Um, 
which is great to get more engagement. Uh, I think people understanding what they're seeing, I think that that'll get that'll get more engagement. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think you're completely right. Um, I think rugby is not a, ma- a massively accessible game. Uh, someone watching the odd game of rugby won't necessarily understand what on earth has just happened. Penalties are given. And very often I'm scratching my head, what exactly was that? What was that penalty given for? And, you know, I'd watch regularly. And I, I think fan engagement is obviously key. And, and the only way uh, to do that is to educate fans. And I, don't, I don't mean that in a, in a patronising way, but I think people want to understand. I think uh, yeah. uh, even with the, the whole build-up of the Rugby World Cup in the summer and the buzz around it and people were talking about it, uh, in the office and things like that, people people want to understand. So it's good that there, there's an increasing amount of this type of coverage, and I think that's that's great for the game. Um, and I'd like to turn to talk just for a minute uh, or two. Given this is an Ulster Rugby podcast, if I could ask your thoughts from, from a, a, an outside perspective, perhaps um, about Ulster's season. The transition that they've been through, it was much publicised, the, the, the difficulty they had a couple of seasons ago. Mm-hmm. What's been your impression of Ulster from the outside uh, in general? Yeah, I think it's um, a definite progression. Uh, I think the, watching them the last kind of 10 years or so really as a, you know, as, a, as an avid uh, rugby fan and, and particularly with the Irish provinces that, you know, they've been a, a big feature of my, of my watching for the last few years. Um, there's, a, there's a real shift in terms of the, the willingness to, to move the ball. I think some of the tries have scored from their kind of own 22. Uh, we weren't seeing them a few years ago. Um, I think the kind of the forward dominated game and the set piece dominated game I think that's there's maybe a bit more balance now there than there was. Um, I think also, they also got incredibly narrow kind of last season and, and even particularly the season before. Very very narrow, a lot of rugby between the 15s. Um, not no real movement away from a real set kind of regimented pattern, um, which you know you could argue has been been a feature of the Irish national game for for the last few years and. Um, I think it's been nice seeing some of that being broken, uh, and I think players like Cooney kind of really stepping up, and he's been really exciting to watch. And Billy Burns at ten, I think yeah. those kind of guys they they suit a, a ball movement type of game. Mm-hmm. Um, Cooney's got a lovely box kick in him, and we're seeing <laughs> we're seeing plenty of box kicks. I mean, that's yeah. that's definitely a feature of the of the Ulster game in particular. Um, but there's some willingness to move the ball in between, and I, I think that's been really refreshing to see as the, as the season has gone on. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, um, from from my perspective, Ulster have been playing with a lot more confidence, um, which has been great. Uh, they're trying things. There's been uh, Billy Burns. Whenever he arrived, he went through a patch where maybe he wasn't playing with the most confidence. He was mm-hmm. doing uh, he was doing his job and he he was doing completely fine. But we're now seeing a bit more of what he can do in terms of creativity. Uh, his uh, awareness, his crossfield kicks. Um, he's he's breaking the line occasionally and uh, just generally uh, has uh, is showing a bit more creative uh, spark. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a quality player. Um, I was uh, I was very fortunate to coach Billy when he was 17, 18 years old. Um, oh. But uh, I had him in the academy at Gloucester for a couple of years, um, and he was he was there as a, a real real good leader. Um, and even as that that age of player, he's always had a very mature head on his shoulders. And 
when you first played uh, for Gloucester when he was what, 18, 19. Um, and even then, just really good distribution skills. Uh, I think it's probably taken him a little while, in, in honesty, to, to settle into the, kind of the senior professional game. Um, I think there was, there was a definite period he went through where it was movement of the ball was pretty much the only thing he was doing. He didn't really attack the line. And it's been really nice to see him flourishing a Dulster. It's been definitely the best move he could have made. So i really, really pleased that, it, that he's come on in the way he has. And it seems like it's the right time for Ulster as well. Yeah, and speaking of, of that, um, we've got Ian Madigan uh, joining us um, in the summer. Well, we'll see what happens with this whole thing, but the idea at the minute is Madigan will join us in the summer and provided we, we get back to normality by then, we'll have, mm-hmm. we'll have that option. So basically, we'll have um, Bill Johnston, who joined us from Munster, we have Billy Burns, mm-hmm. uh, and we have Madigan. We also have Michael Lowry. Who I'm sure you've seen bits and pieces of Michael yeah. Lowry. He's he, he sort of burst onto the scene uh, primarily last season and uh, has been injured for for a large part of the season before everything was postponed. But we have plenty of options there. Uh, briefly, what are your impressions of that move for Ian Madigan? Do you think that's uh, uh, a wise a wise move for him or? I didn't see it coming, if, if I'm honest. Uh, yeah. it was, I mean, there was no doubt he was moving. Uh, yeah. Clearly, the you know, things that maybe maybe haven't gone quite the plan at Bristol in terms of his uh, his his movement there and various other other concerns, maybe. Um, so it's yeah, it was, it was interesting seeing him come back to uh, back to Ireland straight away. Um, I, I did wonder whether a move to France might have been the might have been the route that he went down. Yeah. I just where he's been in terms of how much rugby's played or how much rugby's not played. Um, so that, that might have been a route, but it's a, uh, and then going into obviously Ulster as an, an environment for him now. Um, it's uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing with the, the kind of challenge he's going to have for position and, um, yeah, yeah I'll be, be intrigued as much rugby ends up playing, uh, but it was a long old season, uh, and there's lots of there's a lot of competitions to get through. So it was pretty shrewd, I suppose, on the on the part of the coaching staff to, to yeah. bring in another another quality ten. Well, absolutely. No, personally, I'm delighted. Uh, I think obviously in the modern game you need depth. You have a, a big mm. portion of the squads injured at any given time. So Maligan can cover twelve a bit. He can maybe cover fullback as well. It just gives us this experienced very talented guy to step in which is great um mm. and uh briefly as well you mentioned john cooney maybe we're brainwashing i'll sort of think he's the best player ever uh <laughs> so, so, certainly without wanting to exaggerate too much he has been really instrumental for ulster um mm. he uh looking at that team we have a couple of world-class players. I would, I would put Cooney up there with uh, Marshall Kinsia. I'd say they, they would be the real standout guys. Again, from your, you obviously mentioned he's formed this great half-back partnership with Billy Burns. To what extent, well, how do you phrase this? Personally, I would pick, if we're picking the British Lions tomorrow, I would have Cooney in there, which is <laughs> ironic because he doesn't even play for Ireland. Yeah. From the outside, do you think that's that's a, that's overagging it a bit. Or do do you think do you, would he be rated as highly outside of Ireland? Um, and the answer to that's probably obvious. But how, how highly rated is, is he outside of Ireland? Uh, well, I I personally rate him very very highly. I yeah. think he's absolute quality. Um, I think uh, what the challenge he's got that he's he's just not he's not rated as an international ten right now. Yeah. And you can't be rated if you don't play. 
Um, I think it's uh, that, that's the challenge. I suppose any any player trying to break into an international setup is you, when you've got players who've got a, a proven track record, and obviously Conor Murray has that, and uh, it, you know his pairing with Sexton is has been pretty formidable for a number of years. Um, so it's, it's it's a real challenge for him to break into it. I mean, my my pre Six Nations uh, suggestion for kind of outside bet uh, play of the tournament was Cooney. Yeah. Um, and I and then my only caveat on that was he's got to get on the field. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it always helps. Always one of helps. the opportunity to do. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's been a, been a shame in terms of international scene. Uh, and I think there's there's elements of his game in terms of being really consistent. Um, you know, Ireland play as persisting with their box kicking um, Cooney has, has got that but in terms of consistency at the top level of the game and kind of real height and the kick it's, there's not many better than Conor Murray which is a, which is a real challenge in, yeah. in, in that aspect of the game um, but you know in terms of attack for me he's, he's one of the he's one of the best attacking mm-hmm. nines in the, in the British Isles certainly I think in European rugby I think he's he's way way up there I, know I, I definitely place him in the, kind of the top five nines mm-hmm. um, in the in the British Isles at the minute, um, yeah. that that gives him a at least a shot at the Lions. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear. I suppose uh, when you watch him week in week out, uh, and also do rely quite heavily on him. Certainly have in the past season or two. We, we, we actually don't have huge amount of depth at nine either. Um, mm. That that's been solved in part. Uh, we signed Albie Matthewson, uh, but uh, and he'll bring in some experience, but. Uh, we, we have lacked a bit of depth, and that's why Cooney has been uh, has been so so key and um, uh, part of the reason everyone at Ulster sort of thinks he he's uh, he's been such a he's obviously been a revelation, but uh, he, he's just so highly rated here. But it's just interesting to hear. Obviously, obviously you, you rate him very highly as well. So uh, we're we're not we haven't been completely brainwashed in Ulster. He is actually <laughs> he's he's right up there. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, uh, and I know it's uh, it's a while after the event now, but um, just want to get your thoughts briefly on Ireland uh, and the, the sort of the rise and fall of Ireland. They went from world number one, uh, literal mm-hmm. world beaters, uh, in beating New Zealand, and then we went to the World Cup and we sort of looked at the squad depth and we were looking at each position and it all looked pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. We had a poor Six Nations and we thought, oh, but Smith's got something up his sleeve here. He's he's going to unveil the. Mm-hmm his game plan is and everything will be okay and it wasn't we didn't play particularly well like, <laughs> I couldn't work out uh, what happens but we just seemed we just seemed to um, we just seemed to, to fall apart we're just um, all of those sort of rugby cliches we didn't get off the bus we, uh, mm. what, what in your opinion happened to Ireland? Um, I think my my analysis during the tournament uh, and certainly since the tournament has not really changed. To be honest, uh, I th- very much the mindset that they played a, a an overly structured game, yeah. uh, and it, by the sounds of it, the the environment itself was incredibly structured to the yeah. point of kind of physical and mental fatigue. Um, I think the island success of the last few years has been their absolute dogmatic sticking at a particular pattern of rugby. Um, I think other teams have really struggled with that and with their kind of efficiency around those areas. Um, and it came to the World Cup where uh, there's teams like Japan who, who came into it with the opposite mindset. But their aim was to break the game up and was to 
pretty much use team structures against them. Um, we saw Scotland to an extent, uh, you know, trialing that kind of that version. Um, it didn't quite come off for them, but they they certainly trialed breaking up teams uh, and using their structure against them. And I, and I honestly think that was Ireland's uh, on-field downfall. Um, just really too methodical. And if you're methodical, you become predictable. Um, but the line note itself, I mean, line note has been has been a success of Ireland for so many years. And yet the line faltered, uh, yeah. and, and we saw that coming pre-tournament. Um, we, we saw the set piece uh, at scrum not being as, as solid as it's been, and then playing from. I mean, teams were literally waiting for the team, the ball to be kicked to them. Uh, we, we saw we saw Japan putting four four in the backfield or five in the backfield, yeah. Yeah. waiting to be kicked the ball because they knew he was coming, and then just attacking with absolute ferocity and intent. Um, so yeah, kind of tactically. Uh, I just thought that they they just failed to adapt and um, failed to adapt to what they must have known other teams knew, yeah. um, and I think when you've when you've had success maybe for a number of years and and obviously Schmidt has a, a pretty good track record with the team, uh, it's it actually becomes harder to change. Mm-hmm. It's you almost you almost fear change because it's been working. If you change it, and it doesn't work. Well, you get shot at. Or, Unfortunately, yeah. get shot out if it doesn't work yeah. <laughs> when it's been working too. Um, so yeah, it's a it, it shame that it kind of went that way, really. Yeah, it's, it certainly was uh, for Ireland fans um, a huge shame. I think um, we, we had a, a really talented squad, genuinely, and um, it was that rigidity and um, uh, structure which had got us so far. And you're completely right. I think uh, Joe Schmidt was extremely reluctant to um, change tact. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's interesting to hear. Um, we're talking about Ireland's failure to adapt. I want to turn to talk a wee bit about how generally rugby is changing and adapting. So if you were to, to, to sort of pick out a couple of things, a couple of differences that we've seen in rugby in the past few years, the ways in which it's changed it, what would you identify as the main changes that you've seen as a sort of coach and analyst in the past few years? Um, I think that some of the the controllables become a lot more controllable. Um, so things like uh, like like no possession, with the odd exception, Ireland in the World Cup maybe. Um, <laughs> the odd odd exception, things like like no possession have become a pretty much a certainty. Um, and we've seen a huge shift in some of the quality of play. We we get off set pieces as a, as a result. I think we went through a period of kind of three or four years, or maybe even more, where teams were using set piece to then set a platform to play. Whereas now, set piece is the platform, uh, yeah, which yeah. So we're seeing you know, a lot more efficiency of first, second, and third phase. Um, teams aren't just looking to maybe or hit wide and then hit back, which was you know, fairly fairly basic and mundane rugby uh, for for a period. Now we're seeing. Lots of good manipulation of a line out. Um, seeing teams using line out peels have massively come back, back into vogue, and, uh, and and that's been that's been really prevalent, particularly through the European season. So there's some real clever play um, to kind of take away the the threat from the back. Seen lots more overthrows, planned overthrows from line outs, um, which I thought Fiji were, were pretty remarkable at during the World Cup, um, and it's and it's definitely stuck since. We used to see kind of five meter line, your own five meter line overthrows. Um, they've gone out of fashion, but further up the field, we're now seeing actually quite a decent number of them and some rugby tries off them. Um, 
and the things like kickoff. A kickoff is a uh, is very much a set piece at, the, at this point. It's really well ordered, really well structured, um, and we're seeing the receiving team immediately launch an attack or so kickoff, which we, we didn't see that previously. It was a uh, yeah. been used to seeing kind of box kick from from receipt, and we we definitely still see a decent amount of that, but. There's a lot more intent now. I think you know, teams like Northampton Saints think they've they've really led the way on getting really quickly into shape um, off a restart and then playing immediately. Um, again, play, playing from scrum inside the 22. And I think back to a to a pretty remarkable try John Cooney scored early in the season for us there um, from from a scrum inside their own 22. And we're, we're actually seeing that become a it's a common theme now. Kind of in the English Premiership, you saw Bristol and uh, and Gloucester to, to an extent um, really willing to play from their own their own twenty two, and now we're seeing Leinster uh, really pushing it, and it's been great to see Ulster doing the same. Um, so yeah, a lot more uh, a lot more willingness to to move the ball uh, with an aim of scoring rather than offsetting up field position. Um, so kind of three phase patterns. We, we still see it, but. Teams are will, are willing and wanting to break through on any on any single phase of play, and uh, that, that's not the case across the board, of course. And, but I think there's when you look at the successful teams, I think that's a feature of the, of the successful teams that their real willingness to get forwards and, uh, and create try scoring opportunities as quick as possible. Yeah, and I, I, I suppose uh, one of the other things that we're seeing um, some controversy about is around the, the tackle, the new tackle laws. Uh, certainly it seems to be, it's refereed pretty strictly, and for, for good reason, but uh, it'll change the way the game's played to, to an extent. That there's some discussion I know about even bringing the, the height of the tackle down lower, uh, potentially trialing sort of tackles below the waist. It seems it'll just be completely different games. It'll be interesting to see whether that other uh, whether that ever happens. But um, in terms of how that that is changing the game, I suppose uh, have, uh, from your perspective, is that something which will lead to a lot more offloads, a lot more sort of um, exciting uh, attack rather than just guys battering into each other? Uh, it's a positive or a negative. Uh, change. Uh, I'm I'm a purist and uh, I make no secret of it. Um, I I'm not a fan of the of the the suggestion of the of the law variation, uh, kind of lowering the tackle to uh, below waist height. I am I'm not a fan of it. Um, I think uh, the the game as it currently stands, clearly there's there's a danger element around high tackles, and it was it's. It's great to see that there's an enforcement around that, although it's maybe not as consistent as it might be. Um, so m- making the tackle area safer. Um, my my own feeling is that the kind of the safety of the game. Uh, you you'd have to remove racks, and then we'd have a very different game. Yeah, <laughs> you'd yeah. have to remove the the mall. You'd have to remove yeah. the scrum, and all of a sudden, I mean, there's there's a that sounds a lot like a game that already exists. Yeah, not sure yeah. two versions of it. Um, so you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of rugby league, like like everybody else. Um, but you know, rugby union has its own uh, it, its own feel, and uh, it, it it's something that you know a lot of people have loved for a very long time. Um, yeah. And while we've got to make it safer, I think it needs to retain what makes it unique and what makes it special. Um, and lowering tackle height to below the waist 
I'm not convinced that they'll have the, the kind of outcomes that they want. You know, I, I, can, I can honestly see defences completely changing. I can see defences swarming around the ball area. I mean, their offloads actually become really difficult. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it would change the game so dramatically uh, that, yeah, I would, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the state of play can be managed and consistency within the game can be managed. Yes, I know. I, I, personally, again, I think it would be a huge shame to change what's already a, a great game. I'm sure there's improvements. Um, is there anything in particular you would change about the modern game in terms of um, rules or even technology that's used? Is there anything that springs to mind? Any sort of bugbears that you you, you think? Uh, I think it's I think it's just enforcement of, of a lot of the, the laws that do exist. I mean, yeah, yeah. rugby's not short of laws. Uh, we, we've got quite a number of them, but enforcement of them is uh, is maybe not as consistent as they might be. And yeah. entry into ruck has just been a been a massive feature of kind of press and uh, and commentators' comments of, of particularly of the Six Nations. Um, I mean that there is there is an, uh, a a law that suggests you could come into the back foot from from a ruck. Um, we're seeing huge variations on that um, to the point where it, that law essentially doesn't exist. Um, yeah, yeah. I think in you know enforcing laws like that to the point where uh, where we see a cleaner area. Um, but there's always there's always two sides to it. I mean, yeah. if you if you don't allow those players to enter towards the side of a ruck, you will get more challenge on the ball from the opposition. If you want the attack maintaining possession for longer, yeah. then sometimes you've got to balance it. And at the top level, at international and kind of pro fourteen level, um, there's I think there's always going to be a balance with what law says and what reality is. Uh, and the, the reality is that rugby laws don't don't always match up um, to to what to what is reality on the pitch in terms of letting the game flow and and, and having more from it. But you know, so enforcement of of laws would 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 do a lot. I think I think technology yeah. would would be a, a massive addition to the game. Um, I think the the current process of referencing the the fourth official during play. I think there's more there's more to be made of that. Um, now, there's there's more than enough cameras around the around the pitch for the kind of the media team to be working alongside the officials. Um, call, if they if they've seen something, um, I actually think it's a positive that that technology is is helping. Yeah. The, there's a, been a big move last or just before uh, we stopped. There's a big move to place decisions back onto the field and allow the referee and his assistant referees to make the decisions and kind of almost override technology. Yeah. Personally, I, just, I don't. I don't see the sense in it. It's a, a kind of human error. Well, if we can avoid it, I, I don't know why we why we wouldn't. Should be the yeah, game is yeah. it? Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Certainly, uh, I think uh, it's been introduced um, into into football with the, sort of a mixed mixed reception. I suppose um, the the VAR system has caused some controversy. Uh, yeah. Decisions are given as the letter of the law. But uh, some people feel very hard done by, and it ties into your original point about uh, it's not the rules that needs changed; it's the enforcement of the rules. And I think you're completely right in that there's so many things that happen on a pitch. There will always be a degree of ambiguity around certain things like the rock, the mall. It's just it's just one of those things. It's a mass of bodies. Mm -hmm. How anyone referees a game of rugby 
accurately is beyond me. I, I have no idea how it's, there's just so much to be to, to, to watch. But there's certain things like the, uh, one of my, one of the things winds me up is the, is that caterp- caterpillar ruck thing where for box kicks, they all sort of line up in a row and it takes, it could take 10, 15 seconds and the referee just ignores that the whole sort of second rule, get the ball away from the rock, uh, yeah. take all day over it. Uh, my only concern about the whole use of technology would be the time that it takes. It just, uh, yeah, even, it, it sort of, it winds me up again, the uh, every try is looked at by the TMO. And mm-hmm. if there's any ambiguity over a try, fair enough. But they look at it from every conceivable angle and gets challenged. And it's almost like you can't celebrate a try anymore. It's one of the simple yeah. pleasures of watching rugby. You have to wait and see if it's going to be challenged yeah. or not. But yeah, I think uh, there's a real nice change in the Six Nations, I thought. Uh, the, the last couple of games, uh, there was a real shift in that approach. Try scored, referee walks back, is constantly asking questions to the TMO as to whether something has happened and then stops the kicker if needs be. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought that that's, that was sensible and the, the Caterpillar Rucks uh, use it was being called the moment ball was conceivably available. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, scrum halves have essentially used the laws to their advantage. Yeah. If you set up a Caterpillar and the ball is three bodies in front of you, then arguably the ball isn't available yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of they're within the laws. Um, so it's been a nice change that the referees just started to call, use it the moment the ball was within something that you would deem reasonable uh, of, of being used. Uh, but, you know, using five or six players in a line now. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that's efficient for your kick chase. No, no, it doesn't seem to be. Some, some teams have seen a couple of ridiculous uh, examples of it. And uh, you're just like, what, what are you doing? Um, but it may, may be something they, it's sort of, uh, it's legal. It's maybe a technicality at this stage where it's one of those things um, which hasn't been stamped out. I quite, quite like to say it's stamped out. Um, the, the other thing I was going to ask you, so you, you obviously um, you obviously have always played rugby, played the high level, you coach and you analyse Whenever us, us mere um, sort of spectators, fans of the game watch, what should, we, what, what should we be looking out for whenever we're watching a game in terms of defensive structure, attacking plays, to give us a better understanding of the game? I assume you watch the game differently to a normal fan. So if you were to give a bit of advice, how do we get more out of a game? What should we, what, what should we be watching to, to appreciate it a bit more? I think watching the game live and watching it back are obviously very different things. I mean, I, I rarely watch a game in single time. So yeah. generally I watch a game in anything between double time up to five times as, as fast as normal. Yeah. Um, and that'll, that'll give me a kind of a different picture, I suppose, when you get live. Watching live, um, I, would, I, would, I would look away from the ball. I think that's probably the, the biggest advice I can give anybody who's wanting to understand what they're seeing. The ball itself is, is on minimal uh, minimal relevance if you're trying to understand what's going on. Um, yeah. Camera angles don't always help with that, unfortunately. Um, I'm I'm fortunate that I get the kind of the wide wide angles, and I don't get too. Uh, I can ignore the zoomed in angles. Um, if if watching through TV, kind of do do as much as possible to watch players' actions off the ball. So if, if you want to look at defensive setup, you know, have a look at their kind of body alignment off the ball. Um, are there are their shoulders facing in towards a rack? Or they stood facing square, um, and we see teams like Leinster are a very square on defence. 
Um, you see, uh, other team kind of months that are very aggressive around the ruck area, uh, and, and they'll they'll really challenge challenge the ruck. And you you won't see those things if you if you just focus on the ball itself, um, yeah. rather than looking at whether maybe the nine is stood or uh, kind of look at the look at the bodies around, you know, tacklers and what are their actions uh, around around the ruck area. Um, and then in terms of attack setup, it's uh, the same kind of principle. Have a look at what's the alignment of the, of the forwards of a ruck, and uh, we don't we don't see as much variation there as uh, as I think there should be. I mean, it's become incredibly predictable a lot of teams in terms of the way they, they align, and the teams who are less predictable, uh, they, they they tend to attack better. Uh, teams who got more variation. And they're on they're on the setup, so yeah. Look, look off the ball would be would be number one uh, number one tip. Um, and then if watching games back, then kind of question why something happened uh, rather than kind of just look at the event itself. So yeah. if somebody drops the ball, well, it it might have nothing or little to do with the person who dropped the ball. It might yeah. be any other variable, mm-hmm. and kind of look back and kind of think think critically about what could be the causes of, of yeah. the outcome yeah no that's interesting looking away from the ball i suppose we're fixated on the ball it's sort of like uh, in the same way when you play football or rugby as a wee kid all the kids crowd around the ball as if it's a, a, yeah. of absolute importance where uh, actually looking more widely uh to see uh to see where the space is and where people are aligning the, the way the way teams are setting up uh, it gives us a really good insight in, into what's happening. Uh, no, that's that, that's really interesting. Um, the other thing that, that I was going to ask you, uh, and this will be this will be pretty much the final thing that I, I was going to ask you, is um, whenever you watch a game, there, there's a lot of things that are overlooked. I'm just interested to hear. Uh, there are certain players, for example, that I think are amazing, um, but. You don't hear much about them because they don't have particularly glamorous roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose that those would be the words of, of many a forward out there who, who seem to do work at the cold face, but I'm sure it's true of other positions yeah. as well. Is there any sort of examples of players or, or even positions uh, that do a lot of sort of unseen work, unglamorous work that, that you think are of particular importance? Yeah, I think uh, you know the the old uh, old saying for a for a back row forward uh, is that they should be felt, not seen, and not heard. Um, you, sh- you should know that you should know that they're present. Um, I think that some of the, the best sevens in the world are ones who just like where, where have they been for the last thirty minutes? But they've yeah. turned over four balls. They've they've yeah. won I don't know five penalties for your team and made fifteen tackles, but nobody's noticed. Um, I think. Uh, I think really good sixes in particular, and a six is is almost like an invisible number. Um, yeah, yeah. And some of the you know the best back row players, I think um, Hamish Watson up in Scotland at the minute. Mm-hmm. I think uh, he's very very underrated. I think yeah. he kind of really goes under the radar, um, and yet pops up in places. Um, Ludlam over at the Hampton Saints, and I think uh, he's that player that for you see when he pops up on the wing and carrying the ball. In between that, you don't really notice he's there, but you know he's he's been a nuisance and and, and making twenty tackles uh, in in between. Um, so yeah, I think the back rowers uh, tend to fall at the front of that kind of category, and then there's yeah. there's always one second row that you never see. Um, yeah, yeah. Generally, you, know, you you see the you see the big guys every every now and then. Or Paul O'Connell was a, a yeah. famous example that you'd he would pop up every now and then. Yeah. Um, 
but again, kind of head down, uh, working really hard for the, for the rest of the time. So yeah, yeah I mean, forwards generally get a, get a rough deal than they were there in terms yeah. of the, <laughs> their oh. name showing bright lights. Um, yeah, but it's because they're you know, they, they're doing they're doing the hard work. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, I, I think. Um, to use a Welsh example, Sam Warburton, he obviously got around and got a lot of recognition. Um, yeah. But one thing, it, it was, I can't remember what video it was, it may have been uh, one of yours, it may have been someone else's, it showed Warburton's real value was in slowing down the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he always gets stuck in it. We just gave that the defence that extra couple of seconds to realign mm-hmm. and also disrupt the, the attacking flow of the other team. So it was quick rock balls really key uh, yeah. the, uh, depending on your style of play but um, Warburton was always getting in there and just being a hassle at Toji against Ireland yeah. as well it was just a handful he's just a pest he was always getting stuck in and mm-hmm. uh, uh, England have no shortage of, of those types of players so no, it's, in, it's interesting I always think it's interesting those guys who don't get the plaudits but put in uh, put in all this on-scene work Tom Curry as well uh, as better for England, as uh, yeah. that, that sort of guy. He's, but I mean, you do see him getting about. Uh, uh, so I suppose every, every every sort of six or seven is different. You see, you see some are more impactful, and some just yeah. quietly go around uh, about yeah. the pitch making yeah. tons of tackles. So. Sam Hill would be a, would be another example in there. I mean, yeah. uh, he's allegedly had a quiet season, um, but, but he's. He's made a shed load of tackles. Yeah. Uh, doesn't get a huge number of turnovers, but like Sam Warburton, there's he's always on the ball and he's always yeah. in, in the space and, and he's got to be removed. And, and obviously, takes time at ruck area. So I think players like him, it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been a, a pleasure seeing players like him really flying, uh, quality individual and really good at attributes on the ruck area in particular. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, there's there's a couple of guys like that for Ulster as well, and. Um, I think it's it's absolutely key. We've got to have balance in that back row. So we've got Marcel Kitsia. He's obviously a brilliant player. And then you've got guys. Um, we've got Julie Murphy, up in Ulster as well. And again, you wouldn't necessarily necessarily say a huge amount to him, but he gets around and he he, he gets through a lot of work. And Sean Reedy on the other side, or Matthew Ray, would be, would be the other two sort of uh, sixes that we would have. And it's it's that balance in the back row, um, and I think that's that's something which um, uh, you have to have. Uh, it's really good to speak to guys like yourself to get uh, a bit more of an understanding about all of this. So, um, no, it's extremely helpful, and thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you.